Blog Talk Radio. Good evening and blessings, and welcome to another installment of the Gist of Freedom Estate. This show is produced by acclaimed historian, educator, and author Leslie Gist, and serves as our weekly live online discussion to celebrate the African American experience by honoring all the people, past and present, black and white, who, with faith and focus, are preserving our rich history through literature, the arts, the skilled trades, and the humanities. We thank you for joining us tonight, and we'd love you to be a part of tonight's discussion by calling in with your comments or questions to 347-324-5552. Hello, this is Leslie Gish. You listen to the Gist of Freedom. You can always reach us at www.blackhistoryblog.com or www.blackhistoryuniversity on iTunes. Tonight we have a very special guest, Dr. Palito, Palito, could you help me pronounce yeah. your name, sir? Hello. Hello, can you hear me? I can. Can you hear me? Yes, I can. Can you just introduce yourself to the audience? You're on the Gist of Freedom Blog Talk sure. Radio Hi. Yes, my name is Rob Polito, and I'm a political science professor at Seton Hall University. Wonderful. And you also wrote a book, right? I, book I have, tonight. yes. Mm-hmm. Um, the, Tell the us book about is the book. In the Shadow of the Great Charter, Common Law, Constitutionalism, and the Magna Carta. And it's, um, it, I started working on it um, in anticipation of the 800-year anniversary of the Magna Carta's uh, signing, which is tomorrow, June 15th. Um, and it's a book that tries to um, look at how the Magna Carta has affected U.S. law, and particularly how it's affected the uh, decisions of the U.S. Supreme Court. Wonderful. Now, before we delve into the Magna Carta, can we just have a brief history lesson on the three most important documents uh, that have to do with the, the founding of this country? Declaration of Independence, Constitution, and the Bill of Rights. Can you um, tell us about those three in the order, chronological order? Sure, sure. So the um, the Declaration of Independence is not a legal document, strictly speaking. It's kind of an explanation of why the North American colonies were separating from the British Empire. And so it has a lot of political philosophy in it. It talks about why we're justified in making this uh, break. And it also gives uh, a little bit of history of, uh, of the grievances that the colonies had at the time. So it's really important in the sense that, well, first of all, it's important because it announced to the world that we were going to, uh, to, to, to become independent, but secondly, because it gives a lot of the, um, the philosophy behind this new experiment in democracy that was about to happen. But with the Constitution, of course, the Constitution is drafted after the War of Independence ends, and it is an attempt to make a strong central government uh, over what were formerly colonies, but now are going to be states. And as everybody knows, when the War of Independence ended, there were a number of problems with the governing document that was used during the war, 
to kind of hold the colonies together, and that was, of course, the Articles of Confederation. So the Articles of Confederation didn't really give uh, a lot of powers to the national legislature or to the central federal government. Those things really didn't even exist yet, but in terms of having a centralized power, uh, conduct war, uh, raise uh, uh, money, uh, coin money, uh, and levy taxes, right? So, so it was necessary to have some kind of structured central government that could do all these things so that the former, former colonies and now independent states could survive. So then the Constitution set forth, first of all, the three branches of government and what their powers would be. So Article 1 deals with the um, uh, uh, legislature, Article 2 deals with the executive, and Article 3 deals with the judicial branch. Um, the Constitution itself, the main body of it in its articles, also talk about procedures for amending it, um, uh, also, also talk about um, particular limitations as well as powers on the three branches. But at the time that the Constitution was being drafted and discussed and argued about, uh, some people were concerned that this new federal government would actually be a new source of oppression. So they threw off the rule of the British Empire, and now this new federal government was going to oppress the states uh, in, in, in a similar way to the way up. And so the anti-federalists, as, as they were called, said we really want clearly set out limits on what the federal government can do. And we want them written into the document in form of amendment. And if that only if that's done, will we sign on to it? And so that's why we have the, um, the, the, the Bill of Rights, the first ten amendments to the Constitution. And so they spell out all of these limits on federal power. So Congress will not pass a law that abridges freedom of speech or of the press. Uh, uh, Congress will not pass a law that limits the free exercise of religion and, and so forth. So, yeah, I agree, Leslie. They're tremendously important documents in our history, and they kind of form a backdrop for everything we talk about in American politics. We always go back to particularly the Constitution and the Bill of Rights. Wonderful. Wow, that was a lot, and, and you really put it together so well. Um, I had a few questions that came to my mind while I was listening to you. The Federalists, and when you said the Articles of Federation, I've seen for so many times um, that on Facebook that a lot of people believe there was a president during this war. Can you address if that's true, that during the um, the Revolutionary War, the Articles of yeah. Federation I had a president? I mean, the, the, the Articles of Confederation really gave, as I said, very limited, didn't have a president. Uh, we didn't have a, a, a legislature that could uh, uh, make binding law on the colonies. So really, the, the Articles of Confederation were, a, a do, were just a document uh, that would help us to fight the war and sort of hold us through the, the, the time when we were essentially making mostly military uh, decisions uh, and, and mm-hmm. until a time when there was, there was a, a, a need for a more permanent national government. And a lot of the things that were put into the Constitution ultimately uh, reflected the weaknesses of the Articles of Confederation, including not having a central executive, not having a legislature that could make uh, laws that were binding on the states that the states had to obey. And, of course, going forward, approaching the Civil War, the southern states um, frequently said, we don't have to follow the enactments. We can nullify the enactments of the the, uh, national legislature. So even after the Constitution said that this power resided in the federal government, uh, we were still fighting about it. Right. 
So who were the main authors of the Articles of Confederation? Were they, uh, you know, did they become prominent men in history once the country was formed? Um, they, they, they did. They did, of course. And some of the people who were involved with the Articles of, of Confederation um, clearly went on to uh, participate in forming the new government's efforts. Mm-hmm. Can you give us any names off the top of your head? Of of people who drafted the Articles of, of Confederation? Correct. Uh, uh, if not, we'll move on. I, 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 so what I learned from what you said was the Federalists was, they were anti-Federalists. Are those the same people that you call the the Confederates? No. And we know no. that, okay, um, I'm trying to understand the, the, the relationship between the two. No, I mean the separation took place after the um, a- a- after the the um, war ended because the revolutionary um, uh, uh, states people and and the um, the people who drafted the Articles of Confederation had a common cause initially to throw off the rule of the British Empire, but mm-hmm. but after um, the the um, the war was over, then there were questions like, okay, who is going to govern us now? What will the structure be? And so people <clears throat> like Thomas Jefferson were uh, mm-hmm. concerned about a, a strong central government, uh, and whereas uh, people like Alexander Hamilton said, well, this is a necessity. And so you had them sort of choosing sides when it's not that they agreed on everything before, but they, uh, but, but, but they had less to argue about when it was a question of separating from Britain and more to argue about when we said, what is the, um, uh, what, what, what will the new government look like? So when I talked about the Federalists and Anti-Federalists, I was talking post-war of independence. Okay. Now, can, can from you, the I'm time sorry. that... Go ahead. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm in a hotel right now, and I'm not hearing everything you're saying because there's, like, this water sculpture. Can you hear me okay? I can hear you perfectly, so I'll speak up okay. louder. Is that better? It's okay. Just if I don't if I don't respond exactly, it's because I'm not getting everything. I tried to look for a good place to sit and uh, and talk, and this okay. is about the best I could come up with. Okay. Well, um, it sounds good right now, so we'll keep going. The Declaration okay. of Independence. Um, how long did it take from the time that the Declaration of Independence was drafted to when the country? Uh, ended the Revolutionary War, and it was officially a independent country. Well, it was Some, approximately you know. from 1776 to 1783 or four um, when the war okay. was officially ended, so approximately seven or eight years. Wow, that's a long war. All right, so it is. Yes, and a lot happened. Now, I'm a big fan of Alexander Hamilton, mm-hmm. and um, on my YouTube channel, I have an excerpt from a movie based on Alexander Hamilton. I think it's from the 40s, and in in the movie, they talk about um, what do they call it when um, the Assumption Law, when the war was over, some colonies states were destroyed while others didn't get too you know didn't have too much um damage and the government had Alexander Hamilton and George Washington had to figure out who was going to foot the bill 
during this reconstruction period. Could you talk a little bit about the Assumption Bill and Alexander Hamilton and how that relates to the formation of the country? And when you say Reconstruction, of course, you're not talking about post-Civil War Reconstruction. You're talking no, about I'm Reconstruction talking about... following the War of Independence. Okay, Correct. so Alexander Hamilton had uh, kind of a, a, a business model for how the new republic would look. And so he envisioned, for example, uh, Patterson, uh, New Jersey, was going to be sort of a prototypical new industrial city, and the federal government was going to find ways to support uh, uh, development of manufacturing. So that was sort of one aspect of his vision for a developing nation, a strong uh, federal power. But one of the other controversies was, as you said, um, there were war debts. There were debts that the colonies incurred um, uh, to, as they were fighting the war, as they tried to govern themselves during the war. And so the, the other set of problems that Hamilton had to deal with, of course, where uh, questions uh, these sort of more practical and you could even say mundane questions of what do we do with the war debt now? And this became a state's, uh, uh, state's rights issue uh, because the federal government was going to be able to say what would happen with these debts. Uh, and, and so the states um, couldn't simply uh, refuse to pay them themselves. It was necessary for the, um, for the federal government to make these decisions. Okay. Um, I'm from Patterson, New Jersey, and you teach. Oh, really? In New Jersey, yeah, I worked correct? there for a long time. Yeah, I was I was okay. a legal aid lawyer in Patterson for for years before I became a professor. So I know the I know the city pretty well. Mm-hmm. And and before we move on to the Magna Carta, because this is a great segue, um, into Magna Carta, um, tell us a little bit about about Patterson and why Alexander Hamilton chose Patterson as the well, federal first federal city. I mean the the, um, the 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 Passaic Falls were um, one mm-hmm. of the things that uh, got him interested. I mean he was from uh, this area. I believe he was a graduate of Columbia University, if I'm not mistaken. So he was he he was a uh, from the the Northeast already. Mm-hmm. But Patterson, as people know, has the Great Falls, which are either a national park or a national um, uh, uh, monument now. Um, but anyway, so, so it's it's a source of hydroelectric power. And one of the things was he wanted to sort of show how there could be um, uh, you know, cities that had the, 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 the right sort of, I don't want to say infrastructure because it was a natural resource, but um, were, were set up advantageously to uh, support manufacturing, uh, could look to Patterson as sort of an ideal. And then he also established something called the Society for Useful Manufacturers. And it was uh, uh, sort of, I mean, we could call it in today's terms like a nonprofit corporation that was supposed to um, uh, support technological development related to industry in a lot of different ways, but turned out it, it disbanded um, uh, not too long after it was created because, um, uh, for among other things, because of corruption within it. Mm-hmm. And and he did die, wasn't he murdered? Uh, he, he he did. He died in, in a duel. In mm-hmm. Weehawk, in New Jersey, with Aaron Burr. Correct. Mm-hmm. So he had enemies in the political arena, and that was one of the reasons why his idea uh, failed. And Washington, D.C., how does that relate? Because it's the District of Columbus, Colum- Columbia, right? Uh-huh. Right? And they can't vote in Washington, D.C. Would, Patterson would have been the same as Washington, D.C., a district where 
the people that reside. I, I don't think the city was designed to have residents. I think it was designed just for um, buildings and workers. I'm sorry, you, I you said it was designed to have, and I didn't catch the next word. I'm sorry, it wasn't designed to to um, it wasn't designed for people to live residential uh, homes. Oh, oh resident. Okay, I got you. Okay, okay, yeah. And I think Patterson. I'm I'm only guessing. I'm not sure. I think Patterson was designed the same way. That was the main idea that you shouldn't be voting in uh, Patterson or Washington D.C. because no one should be living there. So that so that Patterson was a was was not a um uh it was a separate district outside of the boundaries of the state of New Jersey. Correct. It was it was supposed to be similar to Washington D.C. the District of Columbia Columbus Columbia. Not sure. District but Columbia. Anyway. Yeah, I, I, I don't know. Um, I mean, mm-hmm. certainly the area has been settled for a long time, and um, it became mm-hmm. after that, of course, a sort of an industrial center. Even after the Society for Useful Manufacturers disbanded, and and Hamilton's vision was kind of a bygone thing. But the, I mean, the labor movement was was really uh, active in Patterson, and the the hydroelectric power of the mill attracted uh, uh, silk mills textile mills to, to Patterson. So, I mean, it was definitely a, I mean, even if it was supposed to be a manufacturing center, I mean, people were going to live there. I mean, it, it would it would be hard to imagine how it could function in the way that mm-hmm. Hamilton envisioned if it, if it didn't have residents. Mm-hmm. But you're talking about political enfranchisement, like could the residents vote in state and national elections? Correct. I, I from what I've read or I heard a lecture that, um, the people were supposed to live outside the outskirts of Patterson, and they were supposed to just go into Patterson and work. And this was like a federal corporation, so maybe I'm wrong. But no, um, I, I would I would check that out. I mean, I don't I don't I honestly don't know. Okay, okay. Uh, but so when you talked yeah, about um, Alexander Hamilton, and you said he 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 was the first treasurer, correct? And you explained the, the assumption bill. Secretary of, of the Treasury? Right. Yeah. Right. And how does the Magna Carta relate to uh, the government and its responsibilities with the with the taxes and and, and the citizens? Well, it's, it's an 800-year-old mm-hmm. document, and when it was mm-hmm. first created back in 1215, it was really a means of settling a dispute between King John in England and some of the uh, nobility who had been uh, loyal to him, uh, but but were in in, in um, essentially a state of hostility because of some of the things that King John was doing. So uh, the situation came to a- actual violence, and the barons were occupying the city of London um, in uh, in early in the year 1215. And so the two sides came together, and with the Archbishop of Canterbury sort of mediating, they uh, worked out an agreement. And the agreement had uh, more than 60 uh, articles to it, so it talked about a lot of things. Some of them were kind of mundane. Some of them were more grandiose. Um, And this document essentially created the basis for peace between the barons and the king. And after the document was uh, signed and sealed by both sides and formally announced, uh, the barons renewed their loyalty to the king, 
uh, and so forth. The peace didn't last long. The uh, Magna Carta was revoked shortly afterwards and annulled by the, the Pope at the time. Uh, and then through English history, there were subsequent versions of the Magna Carta, and people in England continued to cite it um, as sort of a source of liberty. But a lot of people argue about um, how much of a, a sort of uh, uh, document of sort of freedom it really was, because it was uh, not between the king and all the people, but parts of it, uh, as I said, are very specific to uh, what kinds of fines can be charged, how uh, can forests be protected, um, what are the procedures for marriage and dowries. Um, but the, the, the part of the Magna Carta which has sort of received the most attention over the years and what I focus on in the book is Article 39, uh, which says that the king cannot go against any man, we would say any person nowadays, except by law of the land. Article 39 and 40 essentially establish uh, what we call due process. Now, due process is another word for law of the land, and also the right to a speedy trial, the right to trial by jury. So these are the things that have received the most attention over the ensuing 800 years between 1215 and now. So as you know, in our Constitution, in the Bill of Rights, which we talked about before, the, um, the uh, due process is mentioned twice, in the Fifth Amendment and then in the Fourteenth Amendment, which was adopted after the Civil War. Um, and so due process of law is another way of saying law of the land. So we have a direct legal lineage to the Magna Carta because one of the rights that we can claim against the government is the right to due process of law. So if the government wants to take away my life, or my liberty, or my property, they have to follow uh, a due process. Now, what due process is, exactly in each case, that could be a very long discussion, because the courts have told us that due process is a flexible concept. What I was interested in is how courts continue to look back to the Magna Carta when they try to give meaning to the word due process, and this even happened in 2008 when the Supreme Court decided the case of Bullard G.M.B. Bush, which was, uh, 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 had to do with whether the detainees at Guantanamo Bay had access to the federal courts or not. So that got me interested in the question of what does the Magna Carta mean today? I mean, why is Justice Kennedy in 2008 citing this document that's 800 years old and saying this is why we have to allow the detainees access to the courts? And so I noticed that at a number of times in history, leading uh, uh, up to the Civil War, questions of, the, uh, of, of slavery and um, the rights of uh, individuals to have slaves returned to them, the rights of uh, uh, of Ways to sue for freedom in the courts, right? So there were all these questions that invoked the Magna Carta in the 19th century. And then the 20th century, the civil rights era, and the uh, arguments over federal common law, right up to the war on terror, excuse me, we saw the courts looking back again and again to the Magna Carta. So I'm trying to understand exactly what the court uh, courts meant by citing the Magna Carta so often and is there sort of a, a jurisprudence, a way of deciding cases that we can derive from looking at all these citations? Wow. Wow, wow, wow. Now, you said a whole lot there. Due process in the law of the land is what I, what I hear the most. And you mentioned the Fifth and the Fourteenth Amendment. What is the Correct. difference? And could you explain what what the Fifth is and what the Fourteenth Amendment the Fourteenth Amendment is and yes. why did it take so long for the Fourteenth yes. to be? So, the... Um, the first ten amendments, the Bill of Rights that we spoke of earlier, were adopted at, uh, along with the actual articles of the U.S. Constitution because the Anti-Federalists were concerned about excess federal power. Well, after the Civil War ended, 
the concern was less about ex, uh, about oppression by the federal government and more about the oppression by the former Confederate states. That once the war ended, would the Southern states um, uh, and and particularly the Southern wow? Could you say that slower? I'm so sorry. Um, sure. I'm really learning a um, lot tonight. Uh, Could you uh, sorry, yeah. tell us the difference the again? You... I, sure. The conditions aren't okay. ideal. I apologize for this, the, the, the setting that I'm in. It's not a, the perfect way to have an interview, but I'm trying. I love how you explained that, that one war was worried about the federal government. The right. second war, we were worried about the Confederates. Right, because right? the every reason to think that the, the federal government did um, had, uh, that after the Civil War ended, the, the Southern states would try to reinstitute the same kind of uh, 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 racialized social order and and um, restrictive laws targeted at African Americans. I mean, there could no longer be formally legal slavery, but there could be lots of ways that the Southern government could uh, could could limit the status of, of former slaves and, um, and 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 oppress them. And so. The, the 14th Amendment, the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments were adopted just after the Civil War, and they were designed to limit the power of the states because the concern, the threat to liberty uh, coming after the Civil War was, of course, the states, the former Confederate states. And we know that that's exactly what the Southern states tried to do, despite the existence of those amendments. And, you know, that's uh, the, the struggle for uh, freedom and equal rights uh, following the Civil War, lasting all the way up to the Civil Rights Movement, that was exactly the problem. The, the southern states said, can we, uh, what can we do? Can we pass laws that limit people's voting? Can we, um, uh, 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 can we refuse to uh, recognize uh, uh, people's political participation in other ways? And that, so that's exactly what they did. And the, the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments were important um, responses to the anticipated problem of what the southern states would do, but they continued to do it anyway. And it took I mean, we're really still dealing with, with these problems, but it took until uh, the, the, the 1954 in Brown versus Board of Education where we could have a sort of a, the, the Supreme Court backing these, um, uh, the, the, these amendments, really. I mean, the, the 14th Amendment didn't mean what it did uh, uh, to us as a nation until the Supreme Court uh, uh, ruled in Brown in 1954. Okay, now, um, I'm also a genealogist, and in my research I discovered a family called Gist, and they were Quakers. Yes. And one of the, the Gist's names was Mordecai Gist. And mm-hmm. he had two sons, States Rights Gist and Independence Gist. And this was during the Revolutionary War and prior to the Revolutionary War. Why would he have named his son States Rights Gist and Independence Gist? Were there conflicts? I, I know he talked about the Assumption Bill, but, you know, what would cause a general to name his son states' rights gift? Well, I'm, I'm guessing it was one of the southern colonies where he lived. South Carolina. Yeah. So. And Maryland. I mean, well, originally Maryland, then they moved to South Carolina. So again, I mean, they're, they're, the colonies made a common cause, as we were talking about before during the War of Independence, but after the War of Independence, then we had a lot of things that could potentially uh, divide us. And uh, mm-hmm. one of them was the, uh, the southern uh, states were particularly sensitive to, to states' rights and, uh, as I said before, claimed the power several times to try to nullify uh, federal law. So 
you can imagine, uh, and I'm kind of extrapolating here, but you can imagine the Southerners saying um, independence is part of our heritage and states' rights is part of our heritage. Unfortunately, to them, I mean, so much of the time uh, when people made claims for states' rights, it was a, a, a proxy, really, for allowing racism. And you saw this even in the early 20th century with the anti-lynching bills um, that, that people tried to get through Congress. Sometimes when Southern senators would come up on the floor of, of the Senate and oppose these bills, sometimes they would outright say, you know, uh, uh, the, the, the real reason why they were opposing the bill. But sometimes they would talk in terms of states' rights and say, we don't need the federal government coming in and telling us how to administer criminal justice. We can do it ourselves. Of course, they weren't doing it themselves. But, um, but, but again, states' rights, and we still deal with states' rights um, uh, questions uh, today, and so many times states' rights in American history has to do with race. Okay. So we talked about um, two different bills. One bill that comes to mind that was involved and changed in, during both wars is the Fugitive Slave Bill. Right. In 1850, and it, well, it right. the Civil War didn't start to... So later, but, but, but yeah, but the slave laws that predated the Civil War and the Constitution also um, protected the rights of slaveholders to recover slaves. And this is one of the things that I talk about in the book that at times, um, uh, habeas corpus, which is a particular uh, form of a legal action that can be used uh, to sue for, for freedom, sometimes it was used by slave uh, catchers and slave uh, uh, holders to sue. For for uh, for return of slaves to captivity to slavery, right? Sometimes it was used uh, to win freedom for slaves. So it was very Wonderful. complicated. Yeah, it, it was very complicated the way that the habeas corpus could function to restrict liberty for some people, and it could function to um, uh, to, to promote liberty for for others. So it, it, it's yeah. complex. Tell us how did this work? How did it work? What is a habeas corpus? What how, what did you do? Was it a document? How does this work? Habeas corpus is, is a Latin phrase that means you have the body, and essentially it's a way of, of, of ordering a person to come before a court. So it can be used in a lot of different ways. For example, if, if I've been convicted of a crime and I've exhausted all my appeals uh, and I feel that there was something about my, um, uh, my conviction that was fundamentally unjust, I can make a petition for habeas corpus which requires um, uh, the, the, the custodian, the warden of the, the prison I'm in, to produce me to the court, right? And, and, and I can ask that, um, uh, I, I can show that the government does not have legal grounds to hold me. So habeas corpus can be used in that way. It can also be used when someone is detained by the government but not charged with a crime um, to say, well, you know, you have not shown the legal authority to hold me, deprive me of my liberty, and I'm going to the court now to ask uh, uh, for liberty. And then finally, in recent times, uh, habeas corpus became an issue with the Guantanamo Bay detainees because they hadn't been charged, many of them hadn't been charged with any kind of an offense, and so they were just detained indefinitely. So they couldn't appeal a criminal conviction because there was no prosecution. But what they did want to do is go to the federal court and say, I can show that keeping me in Guantanamo is fundamentally unjust. It violates my fundamental rights. And the initial mm -hmm. response of the court was, you can't get in the door. You, um, the, the, the Congress has stripped uh, the courts of federal courts of jurisdiction over these uh, detainee cases, and so this writ doesn't have to be honored. The, the uh, government doesn't have to respond to it. But yeah, you uh, just said the word writ, Professor. You yeah. just said the word writ. 
You introduced right. this word. A writ of reform of pleading. So going back to English law, uh, there are different. There's a writ of replevin. There's a writ of habeas. A, a writ is kind of like a form of legal action. Um, a writ of mandamus and Marbury v. Madison. So a writ of habeas corpus is you're seeking a a, a relief from a court where the court will, uh, uh, in this case, order the custodian to bring the body before the court so that the person can then argue that they should be released. Now, I just have to say this. When we watched the film um, Solomon Northup, many times yeah. I just find it hard to believe that bounty hunters, um, knowing that they, well, many of them, most of them, were um, illiterate and didn't know the mm-hmm. law. Um, the law would be a problem for them. And I don't, you know, from from my studies, I can't imagine them seeking any relief with the courts. I think it would be just easier for them just to kidnap people and drag them it back into slavery. Was. It, it certainly so was. I, um, so I look at the document, the, the habeas corpus and the, fugitive, the original fugitive slave law as an anti-slavery document, meaning Absolutely. that when, when someone was captured by these illegal bounty hunters, um, if, if an abolitionist was involved and learned about this kidnapping, they would right. force the bounty hunters to, as you say, deliver the body. You have the body right. now. You have to appear in court and, and guarantee that you have to have a warrant. Could you explain what the how the warrant evolved from the Magna Carta to the Fugitive Slave Law, that it was necessary yeah. to yeah. go before the court to get a warrant? Yeah, let me go back for, for, for one second, mm-hmm. though. Um, there's a case, uh, Prigby, Pennsylvania. Uh, Pennsylvania was mm-hmm. actually dealing with a problem where um, where fugitive where, where where slave catchers would grab anyone you know right. anyone who was African American whether they were a slave or a free person right and mm-hmm. and it, so it essentially was kidnapping that they were doing and it wasn't only that the, that, that the slave catchers were uh, returning uh, slaves to captivity but they were also capturing people who had never been enslaved and saying them right. enslaved so one of the things Pennsylvania wanted to do as a state was to come up with an orderly procedure by which um, uh, uh, these kinds of disputes could be sorted out. And so they said if a person does forcibly see someone within the state of Pennsylvania, um, that person would be, uh, uh, would, would be detained. So, uh, what year Edward was this, Craig, Professor? Sorry? What year was this? What year? Which what year? year? What year was this? Prisby, Pennsylvania, I want to say it was... 1832, but I don't have my notes mm-hmm. in front of me. But it was okay, it no was problem. about That's, two decades the before the, the um two or three decades before the Civil War. But I don't have the the notes, so I don't want to I don't want to say the exact date for sure without knowing. Okay, it could have been as much as 20, 15 or 20 years short of the beginning of the Civil War. But it was in that period between let's say 1846 and 1826, somewhere somewhere in there. At any rate, okay, so, go ahead. Uh, so the slave the slave catcher Edward Prate goes to court and. Through a writ of habeas corpus, says I should be released because this law that you used to confine me after I kidnapped a person, right, is it, it, unconstitutional. And the Supreme Court agreed with him. So the, the slave catchers, uh, you know, were frequently not the brightest uh, uh, individuals, but they, um, they they had sort of the power of an entire social order behind them, where they could figure out, uh, well, you know, what do I do? How do I use the courts? How do I manipulate the courts? to get the result that I want, even though by any sort of objective standard it, it they want is to deprive somebody of their basic But now, when you say that, it, just like right now, 
you have to have all the political people, like chess players, pieces in in the right place. So right. sometimes you have political or politicians that are pro-slavery in office, and sometimes right. you have anti-slavery. So it wasn't like right. this is always the way American history was. So we we can't describe uh, describe America and its documents and its laws and you know pull out of history certain um, decisions, Supreme Court decisions. Uh, as to reflect the entire country, because there were so many different fights, correct? No, that's correct. I mean, so so at the time, the um, so it was really skewed. In the Civil War period, you had mm-hmm. Benjamin Curtis, who was a complex figure, and he found himself on both sides of the of, of, of this fugitive slave debate. But in Dred Scott, he wrote a very strong and persuasive dissent, uh, showing that mm-hmm. Justice, Chief Justice Taney was wrong in, uh, you know, in, in denying uh, relief uh, to, to Dred Scott. Mm-hmm. At the same time, you had Justice Story on the court who claimed to be a liberal-minded person, but the ruling that he authored in Prigsby, Pennsylvania, is you mm-hmm. know, uh, offensive on many levels. I mean, in terms of human mm-hmm. rights, in terms of um, uh, the, the legal reasoning, in terms of the presumptions that he raises. So I agree with you that you can't sort of uh, uh, describe everyone in society uh, behaving typically um, it consistently with 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 the Supreme Court justice, but even on the court, you had um, you had people who professed to be uh, uh, liberal-minded who gave us some very bad decisions from a human rights point of view, and Justice Story was one of them. Okay, now once free, always free. Uh, Lincoln said that when he um, right wrote um, the Emancipation Proclamation. What does that have to do with Magna Carta, Dred Scott, and other people who were kidnapped but were released because of, um, you know, different court cases? Right. Once free, for always free, forever free. Well, mean? I mean, as as a legal proposition, I mean, mm-hmm. it, it, it's hard to, to disagree with that. As a practical mm-hmm. matter, I mean, so you have the Somerset case, uh, which was assigned in England mm-hmm. in, in the late 1770s, and that case is the movie Bell, right? Once that, free, that, almost that, free. Yeah, that, yeah. Uh, professor, um, but, before you before you talk about the Somerset case, yeah, isn't that that case featured in the movie Bell? I have not seen. Tell me the movie name again. I've oh, you have it. to see the movie Bell. B E L L E. The excellent no, movie I, I, about I the would, Somerset I would like case. To see it. Uh, I don't. I I don't know it. Oh, okay. When we get off the air, we'll talk. But um, All right. okay. talk about the Somerset case. That's very deep. This is a great case. Right. right. So, so in England in 1772, um, Somerset uh, travels to England. I believe he's from. He was enslaved in Jamaica. He travels to England. When it's time for him to go back with a slaveholder to Jamaica, he refuses to go. And so he has some advocates go and seek his freedom through habeas corpus in, uh, in, in, in English court. And so uh, Lord Mansfield says once a person resides in a free uh, 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 territory or state or nation, such as England, uh, which had um, uh, by then um, abolished slavery within England, um, that person is free. So that was the ruling, and it really frightened a lot of slaveholders because they realized that could have a lot of repercussions, from not the least of which was that in, in, in America, judges could say um, that, that – uh, if slavery violated natural law, then there was no right to hold slaves. We're short of that. If a person uh, was was was, uh, was 
had traveled from the slave state to a free state, get, they could get their freedom. So it was um, the, the, what the American courts did generally is they said slavery is repugnant to natural law, and it can only be supported by what they call positive law or municipal law or human-made law. So it set up this kind of crazy um, situation where the courts were saying, yes, we know this is horrible, but we have to abide by the rules of legislatures uh, that have permitted slavery. And so they didn't go as far as they could have with the Somerset uh, decision in the United States, of course, until after you know the Civil War and slavery, legalized slavery, had ended. Mm-hmm. So Warren's free for uh, forever free now. Um, in my research, I read a book called The Underground Railroad, written mm-hmm. by New Jersey and uh, William Still. And mm-hmm. one of the uh, most popular cases is Jane Johnson, and mm-hmm. uh, she was traveling with a slaver and a mm-hmm. uh, black abolitionist spotted her on a train. And she, some people argue that she already knew about the law once mm-hmm. free forever free. And anyway, they helped escape from the from the train in New Jersey, a uh, ferry too. Oh really? And, what uh, part of New Jersey was that? Camden. Oh really? Through Camden and Philadelphia, and they helped. They took her off. The, um, they got her off of Camden, and um, the the black abolitionists and the white abolitionists on the vigilance committee both were um, put in jail. But they did eventually win their case. Um, the slaver was a, a, a high-ranking um, military man and mm-hmm. an ambassador, and mm-hmm. he fought. And it was, you know, many of these cases are like this. And when we teach to teach people about the um, Dred Scott, there were so many cases that were won by the anti-slavery right. movement, which right. led to the Dred Scott, which no one talks about. You right. know, Dred Scott wasn't the only case. It was several cases that were successful, which led to this decision stopping, putting this to an end. Right. Um, so, absolutely. I absolutely agree with you. I think the problem is that when the U.S. Supreme Court are ruling on a question of federal mm-hmm. law, I mean, it's binding mm-hmm. on everybody. So, it, so, mm-hmm. the, the, so, so Cheney's ruling was very divisive to the United States. Some people uh, felt that it widened the gulf between the, the slave-holding states and, and the free states. But uh, the other thing about it is the Supreme Court is saying the highest law of the land is that African Americans don't have any rights and that uh, a person cannot sue, uh, a person who is who has been enslaved cannot sue for their freedom. So there were many other successful cases, but the, but, but the Supreme Court has, and this is one of the things that I talk about a lot in the book, the Supreme Court has mm-hmm. uh, power to create constitutional norms. So the, the norm was that, um, you know, that, that African Americans did not have to be recognized um, as, as bearers of, of legal rights. And, and that was okay. what, that's why we talk so much about Dred Scott, because it was such a horrible decision in that sense, saying this is a law of the United States and everybody has to follow it. Now, what year did Dred Scott uh, take place? What year was that? Seven. Say it again? Seven, yeah. Fifty-seven. Yeah. And how long did it last? Well, the ruling was never overturned. I mean, Justice McLean and Justice Curtis uh, wrote very persuasive dissents, and President Lincoln later relied on the dissents to basically to say that you know they refuted uh, Cheney's arguments completely. But the the the, uh, Dred Scott was never really overruled. I mean, the, the end of slavery effectively overruled Dred Scott, but it was never overruled by the Supreme Court. 
is it still possible to overrule it today? Um, I guess I would say possible. Court can only decide cases that come to it. And, uh, mm-hmm. you know, the, the question of, you know, the, the rights of, I mean, I guess you'd say it was implicitly overruled so many times because any time that a court um, uh, gave relief. Ignored uh, Yeah, so, so, um, so it was implicitly overruled in that way, but because of historical events, it became unnecessary to overrule it explicitly. <laughs> but, I mean, you know, the so Supreme it, Court was, mm-hmm. was so, uh, they conveniently ignored so many precedents. I mean, even in Parson v. Ferguson, they looked back, and I'm really ranging widely here, but they looked back at, uh, at a state court case from Massachusetts, Robert C. Boston from the 1840s, to justify mm-hmm. their ruling in Plessy. But in the 1840s, there was no equal protection clause. So, I mean, just to say that the Supreme Court is always going to be consistent uh, and is always going to uh, 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 consider everything that um, is legally relevant is just not historically hasn't been true. Now, what do you mean when you say protection clause? What does that mean? I, I, that I say, I'm sorry, I say what? I couldn't protection, hear you again. Protection clause. You said protection clause, that there wasn't equal any protection clause. Oh, equal protection clause. clause, yeah. So in the 14th Amendment, you have the due process clause that we already talked about, but also the equal mm-hmm. protection clause, which is no state of overturning um, uh, state-enforced racial segregation in the United States. So Brown versus Board of Education and the cases that preceded it were invoking the equal protection clause to say uh, uh, segregated public facilities uh, violate the right to equal protection. So when the state supports these kinds of reign with white segregated public schools, they're violating the right to equal protection, which every, every American has. Mm-hmm. Equal protection, that's, that's very interesting. Now, when I was researching, um, I think it was the 14th Amendment, mm-hmm. I saw a picture <clears throat> in the Harper's Ferry, the Harp, sorry, not Harper's, Harper's Weekly Magazine. Of, Harper's, um, yeah, okay. Yeah, blacks and white soldiers celebrating. Could you explain why the 14th Amendment was being celebrated by white men and what, and when we go back to the Magna Carta, the original document from 1215, 12, I think it is, yeah. um, used the word free men. And there, you know, there weren't any black slaves during that time. Right. So you had well, white slaves during the first, during the uh-huh. initial Magna Carta. And what is similar? Can you explain the similarity between the Magna Carta's reference to free men mm-hmm. and the Constitution's reference to free men too? Well, that as wasn't I understand it, all the Magna Carta refers to, uh, to free men of the realm because <clears throat> they're differentiating property owners from non-property mm-hmm. owners. So you weren't fully free if you didn't own property. Um, the Equal Protection Clause doesn't say free. Uh, men or free people. It simply says no state shall deprive any person of equal protection of the laws. But if you look at, um, I had written a book on um, history of torture in the United States, and one of the things that I, I looked at was some of the early um, statutes of different states, including Georgia, and many times the word free was used to differentiate the punishments that someone, so a free person couldn't be punished in the same way as a non-free, an unfree person. And also, sometimes there's specific reference to race, saying that it says no colored, uh, a person cannot be whipped, and I don't like the term color, but it's the term that's used in the statute, uh, except for a colored person. So, um, mm-hmm. so those, those words are definitely carefully chosen in different mm-hmm. um, uh, state laws, um, but the Constitution doesn't 
use the word um, free in the Equal Protection Clause. It simply says no state shall deprive any person of equal protection of the laws. Does the Constitution at all talk about race? Well, it's, I mean, it certainly does when it, when it refers to slavery because the, the fact was that slavery was a racialized institution in the United States. Um, but but so it what, doesn't what refer does it to say race, race specifically. Yeah. Well, it doesn't. specifically doesn't because I know many historians say there's no mention of race. But right. is there a mention of landholders? Did, did this country distinguish between a landholder, were there any benefits for landholders versus whiteless, white landless owners? Well, again, it was implicit. I mean, the people mm-hmm. we talked before about the people who wrote the Articles of the Confederation and some of the same people, mm-hmm. you know, who drafted the Constitution, um, mm-hmm. but but uh, they were all landholders. So the fact of you know sort of the class uh, identity of of the um, of, of the drafters, so-called founding fathers, and the racial identity of the so-called founding fathers, right? We we were talking about white landowners. Uh, but all of that is implicit in the document, and for obvious reasons, right. because you know they they knew they didn't want to draw attention to these issues. We know that they were even as they were practicing slavery, even as they were they were um, holding slaves and, and purchasing slaves and, and having slaves make them rich. Right, uh, the, the, mm-hmm. the the drafters were very uncomfortable with the idea of slavery because it was a glaring contradiction with the principles that they were you know stating for for, for the world. Mm-hmm. But what, what I'm, I'm talking about, the, the white, soon. I'm talking, oh, okay, all right. Yeah, I'm going okay, to have to run soon. Yeah, um, I definitely would like to continue talking with you um, uh, okay. later on. Um, I just, you know, I have... Another you know, time. Okay. Yes, we, we will reschedule you. We will reschedule you for another interview because we need a very, I was, the next question I was going to ask had something to do with the three-fifths clause, and but you don't have time, so I'm going to let you run. But I had I learned a great deal, and we have to have you back on. And the name of your book again? Uh, it's uh, In the Shadow of the Great Charter, Commonwealth and Constitutionalism some, and the Magna Carta. And if someone wants to reach you, how would they contact you? Um, the best way is just to go to the Seton Hall. Um, I teach it, I said, so, so um, to go to the Seton Hall website and um, in the political science department, and my phone number and my email address are, are, are there. Wonderful, and have a great uh, speaking engagement and book signing tomorrow yes, at the tomorrow National tomorrow Archives. Tomorrow. And if you see Miss Alilia Bundles, Madam C.J. Walker's granddaughter, so Leslie Gibbs said hello. Okay. Okay. Alrighty. Let's Thank see. you. Bye bye. Have a good evening. Bye bye. You too.